0: All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. I'm going to read this scripture to you. We're going to talk about revival. But I want to start our talk about revival, or continue our talk about revival. We talked about it last week. I'm going to read this scripture to you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. And if Christ is not risen... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So, Paul is writing about the resurrection. There is no resurrection if Christ has not risen. Your faith has no meaning, and you are still in your sins. And then in verse 19, Paul says this, If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men the most pitiable. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, what is the point? The reality is we don't have hope in Christ only in this life. There is something beyond this life. There is something beyond this age. And we are commissioned to live our life in such a way that we don't forsake our life here and look only to the life to come. And we're not to look only to this life here and not be mindful of the life to come. Because here's the reality. If you are in Christ right now, you have already been raised with Him. This is the language the Scripture uses when it talks about our salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. The Bible talks about our salvation in those terms. It is a done deal. You have been saved. If you are in Christ, you are saved, period. Past tense, finished work. If you are in Christ, your salvation is being worked out right now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. He's not telling you to get yourself saved, to work yourself to salvation. He's saying you are already saved. It's a finished work. Now let that salvation work that salvation, work that life of Christ out of you. What does that involve? That involves you renewing your mind to the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the, it's the process of you deciding that you will no longer be conformed to this world, but you will be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 If there is no resurrection you can't do that if there is no resurrection all of this is meaningless but there is a resurrection Christ is written risen and your faith is not futile your faith is meaningful and we should live meaningful lives by faith. Colossians 2:10 Paul writes, you are complete in him. So if we have been raised up in Christ, we are complete in him. Look at these little babies. Do you know these little babies here are complete human beings? They are complete. They're not going to hit age 10 and then get their right foot. They're not going to hit age 13 and then get their left hand. No, they're complete. Are they mature? Are they finished growing? Are they grown up? No, they're not grown up, but they're complete. So when we read the Scripture, when we read Paul's letters, for instance, in the Ephesians, in his letter to the Ephesians, he talks about growing up. Leaving childhood and going on to maturity. We look at our babies and we say, they're complete. They're complete human beings. They were complete human beings in the womb, they were complete human beings when they were born. This is why we pray constantly, God, end abortion. Because an abortion ends a complete human being's life. But when they're born, they're not grown up, right? When we're born again, we are complete in Christ, but we're not grown up. When we're born again, we are complete in Him, but we are to grow up to maturity. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says we're to grow to the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. So we're complete in Him, but our redemption is not complete. How? How? Well, it is and it isn't. Our redemption is not complete until our body is complete. We have been completely redeemed, but we still live in these bodies. So resurrection, this is the hope of resurrection. How do I know this body will be redeemed one day? Because I have been redeemed. I have been redeemed. Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the, G, until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. It doesn't say, He who has begun a good work and you may complete it if He feels like it. He may complete it if you don't mess it up. No, it says He will complete it even until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise from God. That completion involves... The resurrection of our body. Why did Jesus say don't fear death? Don't fear those who have power to kill your body, but fear him who has power over your soul, both to cast it into hell or to give it eternal life in his presence. We don't fear physical death because physical death is not an end. Physical death for the believer is simply a transition. We don't like death. We have people in our congregation dealing with death right now, battling sickness and disease that could potentially take their physical life. But sickness and disease cannot take your eternal life. And that's why Jesus said, don't fear physical death. Jesus has conquered death. This is the hope of resurrection. Now I'm not really talking to you about resurrection, I'm talking to you about revival. But if there is no resurrection, then there's no point in talking about revival. Because what are we being revived to? What's the point of revival? So the resurrection gives us a hope that is sure. It's not only a hope that will not, it is a hope that cannot disappoint Let's go to Romans. Hold your place. uh, Well, let's turn over to Romans and then we're going to go to another place after that. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Let me read a few verses here to you. Let me read verses 18 through 24. Romans 8, 18. Paul is writing here. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I, I want you to be real careful in how you see this. It's not just the glory that will be revealed to us. It's the glory that will be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God subjected the creation to the curse Not in futility, but in hope. Because when God subjected the creation to the curse, God knew what the cure would be. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Before the material universe came into being, God already knew what the curse would be, and he already knew what the cure would be. So when he subjected the creation to the curse, it was not in futility, but it was in hope. And who is our hope? Our hope is Christ. Who is Christ? He is the resurrection and the life. Martha said, Jesus, if you'd have just been here four days sooner, you could have healed our brother, and he wouldn't have died. But now he's been in the tomb for four days, and he stinketh. Jesus says, Martha, do you believe? Yes, I believe. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, shall live. Do you believe, Martha? Jesus is our hope because he is the resurrection and the life. Verse 21, "...because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body for we were saved in this hope but hope that is seen is not hope for why does one still hope for what he sees for we were saved in this hope this body will be redeemed one day the body of our loved ones laying in hospital beds racked with disease will be redeemed one day Healing is not a question of if. Healing is only a question of when. It's not even a question of how. Because God raised Lazarus from the dead, and we say, well, Lazarus, he raised him from the dead. Yeah, but Lazarus died again. The healing that Jesus bought for us was that we will live, and though we die, we will live forever. That death doesn't rob us of life. Death only delivers us to the one who is our hope. I love what John MacArthur said. John MacArthur says that death is nothing more than a servant that takes us by the hand and takes us to Jesus. That's all death can do for the believer. That's why if you have faith in Christ, you should not fear death. The hope of resurrection gives us hope in this life and beyond this life. It gives us hope in all things. Revival is a real hope for resurrection is a present reality that should fill our lives with hope. So, if Jesus is not risen... Your faith is futile, Paul writes. The faith God calls us to in Him is a radical faith. Faith is not simply mental assent. The job of the the Christian is not to talk people into believing into Jesus. Remember, we've not been called to be good salesmen. We've been called to be good messengers. A messenger doesn't go and sell the message to the person he delivers it to. He just simply delivers it to the person. The power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The message is the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have created a Christianity, we have created a church environment and church services where we are trying to talk people into, sell people into, guilt people into, manipulate people into faith. And that is unscriptural, it is unbiblical, it is not right, because if you can talk Listen to me, church. If you can talk someone into believing into Jesus, someone will talk them out of believing into Jesus. If there's a circumstance that will convince you to trust in Jesus, then there is a circumstance that will convince you to no longer trust in Jesus. And if your trust in Jesus is built upon someone else's convincing you to trust in Him, if your trust in Jesus is built upon the circumstances of your life, listen, your circumstances are going to change and perhaps not for the better. People are going to come to you with words and perhaps not words of faith. And if you've been talked into your faith, you will be talked out of your faith. So what is our hope? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the power of the gospel. Our hope is in the power of His Word to enter our heart and to change us, to make us new. We don't need more intellect. We don't need a better understanding here. We need a new heart. That's where it's got to begin. You can have all the understanding you want up here, but if you don't have a new heart, this is meaningless. And a lot of people try to get Christ, they try to get Christianity, they try to get the gospel here, and it doesn't make sense to them here. The gospel was never meant to make sense to you here until it first changes this right here. Until your heart is changed, you will never get it here. And even... After your heart is changed, you, if you've ever if you've been changed, if you've lived, if you've walked with God any time at all, it doesn't take long, you're gonna know real quick that even though your heart is changed, you are far from understanding everything God does. You are far from understanding his ways. But if you trust his word, if you trust Who he has declared himself to be, though you may not understand his ways, we absolutely know he is good. You might not understand his plan and purpose, but here's what he tells us for certain in his word. He works all things according to his plan and his purpose. And at the end of everything, he does all things for his glory. You've no doubt heard the, the, the metaphor of the, the tapestry where you, if you ever, guys ever had a Persian rug, you've seen a Persian rug, turn a Persian rug over on its... Uh, and you look at the back of it, it, it's not very beautiful. It's kind of ugly as a matter of fact. But when you flip that rug over and you look at the front of it, you see the beauty. This is the reality of our life right now. This is why we have hope in the resurrection because what the resurrection is going to do one day, we're going to see him face to face. We're going to put off immortality. We're going to put off corruption. And we're going to put on immortality. We're going to put on incorruption. We're going to leave the The curse of this world, it's going to be taken away, and it's going to be like God flipping the tapestry over, and all of those things that seemed so ugly that didn't make any sense to us, and we couldn't see any pattern, any purpose in anything that that we were experiencing or seeing. God's going to flip that around, and we're going to see the beauty and the glory of all that He has done in all, listen to me, church, in all things in our life. In all things even the things that did not make sense to you in the moment, you will see the beauty and the glory of those things one day in Jesus Christ. This is the faith we're called to. This is why the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. If we spend all day looking at the backside from this side of the veil... And we convince ourselves that this is all there is. We'll never believe that there's another side. That there is a greater glory. We'll never believe what Paul says. That the, that the sufferings of this world cannot be compared to the glory that God is working in his children through all things. So the faith God calls us to in him is a radical faith. It's a love and a reliance on God from the core of our being, from and with all of our heart. The Christian faith at its core is radical and it calls us to live radical lives of faith and love. If you just stop and think about the core tenets of Christianity, it's, it sounds pretty radical. Do you know why Islam hates Christianity? Because Islam believes Christianity minimizes and degrades and shames the true God. Because in Islam's eyes, for God to become a man is shameful. It's weak. And it is one of the worst insults you could give to God to call God a man. But what does the Bible say? God took on human flesh. He came to us in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful. Jesus is the God-man. He became a man. He was born into this world the same way we were all born into this world. We could get graphic, but I won't. But if you've ever witnessed a live birth, you know it's messy. It's painful. That's how the Son of God came into this world. He didn't get a pass, He didn't take a pass. He didn't say, oh, that birth canal's a little messy for me. You know, after all, I am the Son of God. I surely can be born into the world a different way, a less messy way. No. He wasn't. He humbly and obediently submitted himself to the shame and the death of the cross. But he defeated death and he rose again from the grave. He ascended to the majesty on high. He received the kingdom. He has redeemed us and renewed us by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, and by his rule. Here's what the Bible teaches, that every disciple is to be a disciple maker. That every disciple is called to preach and to live the gospel, to be and to make disciples of all peoples and so manifest the life and the fruit of God's Spirit that dwells within us by grace through faith. This is the radical faith that we are called to live out. It's not a convenient faith. Faith is not convenient. Have you ever noticed that? Faith is not convenient. If it was, it wouldn't be faith. Faith is not based on everything we can see and touch and handle. If it, if it was, it wouldn't be faith. You wonder why God does things the way he does? Hebrews 11:6 Without faith it is impossible to please God. God has ordered the world and he has ordered our relationship with him in such a way that we must be people of faith. And he will not allow us to walk through this world apart from faith, without faith. If he does, you're in sad shape. That means God has chosen to leave you alone, and you don't want God to leave you alone. Let me read a scripture to you. It's not, it's Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verse 5. I want you to hear me well. Hear what the Scripture is saying here. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 11.5 The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. In other words, he leaves the wicked. But the wicked will have their day. But if God is testing your faith, it's because he has counted you righteous. It's because he has chosen you. It's because he has called you and chosen you to be his child. And just like a good father doesn't leave their children to themselves, A good God doesn't leave His children to themselves, but He tests the righteous. Don't pity those who have been tested by God. Pity those that God has chosen to leave alone in this world. They have their riches. They have the life they want. They have it to perfection. And here we are as believers, and we look to people like that, and we say, man, I wish I had a life like that. Really, do you? Do you really want to have a life like that? Maybe you don't. Because when it's all said and done, the Bible says that our life is like a vapor that passes before our eyes. As long as you can imagine living on this earth, it is nothing compared to eternity. And there will be a lot of people who have gone through this life having everything they want, believing that they are blessed beyond measure because they've had just the life they wanted. And God has, in essence, left them alone. That they will stand before their creator one day, and in that day that they stand before their creator, all that they had in this world, though they gain the whole world, in the day that they realize they've lost their soul, what have they really gained? They've gained nothing. But God tests the righteous. This is the walk of faith God's called us to. It's the life God's called us to. Not to despise the test, but to be thankful to embrace the test because it means that God loves you. It means that God has a plan and a purpose in what he is doing in and through your life. that in the midst of the test, in the midst of the struggle, we look to Him, we lean on Him, we see Him as our only hope. I always tell people, you do everything you can in the natural, gain the wisdom of God, use the wisdom of God, do all you can in the natural, but when it's all said and done, it's not going to be by natural means that we're going to overcome, it's going to be by faith and the power of God that we will overcome. God gave you a brain, use it. God gave you feet, use them. God gave you hands, use them. But don't use those things apart from faith in God and understanding that you have those things because God gave those things to you. God calls us to radical faith and radical faith works by radical love. It is the love of God demonstrated by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that is the most radical in the most scandalous demonstration that God has given to us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not by our works, but God has called us to work. Not to become saved, but because we have been saved. (coughs) So how are we to live our lives on this earth? What is our life to look like? Would you agree with me if I said that America needs revival? Would you agree with me if I said the church in America needs revival? Revival's not going to come to America until revival comes to the church. Revival's not going to come to the church until revival comes to you and to me. We will never experience true revival until we experience the truth of our sin. God hates sin. Do you know how much God hated sin? Do you know how much God hates sin? He hates it so much that He gave His only Son to overcome it. Parents, I want to ask you, how many of you would give your only child, how many of you would give the life of your only child to die for people that hate you? that do not appreciate you, that do not care anything about you, there's not anyone that I know of or can imagine that would do that. But that is exactly what God did. And We live in a day and a time when the church is calling those things God clearly calls evil, we call them now good, We say what was a sin in the old is no longer a sin in the new. We're more fearful of men than we are of God. And we minimize sin and sinfulness to the point that it's meaningless. And when sin becomes meaningless and when we minimize sin, we minimize what Jesus did and we make meaningless what Jesus did in coming to die. Because of sin, we will never have revival until we get a picture of, until we begin to understand how much God despises sin. When we love what God hates, we are fundamentally opposed to Him and set on a course of destruction. Watch the news, read the newspaper, listen to the chatter. We live in a nation that has come to a place where we love what God hates. And we are actively working to put pressure on people to come around to that way of thinking. And the sad thing is the church is buying into it. Revival is a product of radical love. The love Jesus demonstrated in coming to us, there is nothing more radical than that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. So Jesus, here in the context of Matthew 22, He's teaching. He is, this is the week preceding His crucifixion. <laughs> He's already made his way into Jerusalem. He's teaching in the days preceding his arrest and crucifixion. And they were constantly testing Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to find some way that they could justify his arrest and his execution. Because by this time, the religious establishment of Jesus' day recognized Jesus for exactly who he was. He was a radical in every sense of the word, according to their definition. But he was exactly who God ordained him to be and called him to be as he walked this earth. The sinless Lamb of God. He came to live a life that you and I cannot live. He came to keep a law that you and I cannot keep. He came to die a death that you and I could not die. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, they test Jesus. They come to him. Verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Hold your place there. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where Moses presents to the children of Israel the blessings and the curse. These are the chapters of Deuteronomy. And then when Moses presents the blessing and the curse in chapter 30, he says, Now, This is what's going to happen if you violate these things. I just want to read to you verse (coughs) 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Look at this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. He didn't say you will. He said God would circumcise your heart. This is the promise Jeremiah gives to the children of Israel that there is coming a new covenant. There's coming a new day when God will not just give you his commandments written on tablets of stone, but he will engrave them upon your heart. That is the day we live in church. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Jesus calls loving God with all your heart the greatest commandment. I want to ask you, what does it mean to love God with all your heart? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe a more important question is to ask yourself, do I love God with all my heart? I can't answer the question for you, but I'll answer the question for myself, okay? And the answer for me is no, I don't. But I want to. But every day I'm reminded of how I fail in loving God with all of my heart. And every day that I fail to love God with all of my heart, I realize that the only hope that I have is the grace of God. That in spite of the fact that I want to love God with all my heart, I I, I don't do it. But God is there in his grace to save me from myself. Because I can't do what God has commanded me to do. I can't. The best I can do is to put my trust in the one who can do what I cannot do. And when I fail to love God with all my heart, I realize that in whatever it is that I'm loving more than God, it's sin. That there are things That I love more than God. Those things are sin. It doesn't matter if it's Rocky Road ice cream or pornography or alcohol or drugs or violence or whatever it is. The world is filled with these things and we see the horrendous things and we say, well, I don't love that. Oh, no, I don't. I don't love pornography. I don't love violence. I don't love that. But what do you love? Do you love your work? Do you love your playtime? Do you love, what do you love? What defines your life? Where does your mind go in those times when you don't have anything pressing for it to be fixed on? I know it's kind of hard to live in that kind of world. Now, it seems like there's something always competing with our thoughts. But in those times, when it's just you and God, and you don't have anything pressing on you, are you aware that God is there? Where, where does your mind go? What do you dwell on? When you're not having to work, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to think about? What is it that you obsess over? If I can use that word. See, to love God with all your heart is for God to be the very object of your affection, of your love. That at the core of your being, that's what your heart is. The heart is the core of your being. The heart's not just your emotions. The heart's not just your feelings. The heart, biblically, is the core of your being. At the core of your being, what do you love? At the core of your being, what, what, what is your life focused on? If it's not God, there's a problem. Because this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Because that's how God has loved us. And He proved it in a way that we'll never be able to prove it. He came and He died for us. He sent His Son for us. Jesus walked that road. He died on that cross. Not while you were begging Him to die, but while you were actively opposing Him and could care less whether He died. To love God with all your heart. What is competing In your heart? What is competing for your love and for your affection? I'm going to leave you with that question today, and we're going to pick this up next week, and we're going to keep talking about revival. Because revival will not come to the church, revival will not come to any of us until we settle in our heart where our love is, where our affection is, to the very core of our being. And that we become people that are driven to love God because we realize that we do not and we cannot love Him in that way. But do you have a desire to? Do you have a desire to love God to the very core of your being? I hope you do. I pray you do.